Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Thank you so much, Anna. And can I also welcome everyone to this State of Affairs event at this wonderful forum, the State Library of Queensland, at, on a wonderful evening. A couple of Melburnians on stage here are really appreciating your weather tonight. <laughs> I'd like to join Anna in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and I too pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, my guest tonight is John Daly. John, as most of you will know, is the CEO of the Grattan Institute and one of Australia's foremost public intellectuals. John is now about knee-deep in a Grattan report on political populism in Australia and beyond. He's been thinking very hard about the sorts of issues that we're going to discuss tonight. He's also my boss, so I'm looking forward to putting him through the ringer a bit. So the structure for this evening is that uh, John and I will discuss and debate the issues for around about 30 or 40 minutes, uh, which will leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. Um, I've got in my hand here some, some very good questions that some of you sent when you registered for this event, and I hope to put some of those to John, but we certainly encourage uh, live, if you like, uh, questions from the floor, so please be ready to put your hand up when that time arrives. I should also mention, please, that the Twitter handles and hashtag for this event are as follows. The handles are at Grattan Inst and at SLQLD and the hashtag is hash state of affairs. So if you are inclined to live tweet this evening, go for your life. Um, so John, in welcoming you, I might just say that we've got a big task ahead of you tonight. <laughs> We basically want you to make just a little bit of sense of one of the most tumultuous times in global and domestic politics, perhaps since World War II. For political junkies like you and me, and I'm guessing most in our audience tonight, there's probably a fair bit of fun to be had in the theatre of politics at the moment, trying to keep up with the latest Twitter tirade of the President of the United States or the misadventures of Barnaby Joyce or the uh, conspiracy theories of Julie Bishop or, dare I say it, the burka stunts of Pauline Hanson. But beneath all the, the political pyrotechnics, I suppose, are some trends that have a lot of people really quite deeply worried about the future of our politics, the future, indeed, of our democracy. So we've called tonight's event The Rise of Populism, and we want to cover three broad areas. Firstly, what exactly has been going on in politics in recent times? Secondly, what might have caused these voting trends and the rise of populism and protest? And thirdly, what, if anything, can or should be done about it? That's all, that's mm. all. So John, let's start at the start. What what actually has been going on in the ballot boxes in recent years? And perhaps we should start overseas with mm. 
Brexit, perhaps the, the well, mother of all protest votes. Or we might go back a little bit further, because I think it's worth putting this in context. So um, if you look at the vote share of centre-right, centre-left parties in, in um, the developed world, going back all the way to 1970, uh, as you can do if you're Barclays Bank and you have lots of resources, and they wrote a very interesting report on this called The Politics of Rage. So if you go all the way back to 1970, the the vote share of these centre-right, centre-left parties has been falling. Uh, and it's, you know, some years it falls more than others, some countries it falls more than others, but there's a very long-run trend. Uh, and it's, I think, one of those things, when, when minor parties get 10% of the vote, you know, to be blunt, it doesn't make that much of a difference. You know, life goes on. But when, of course, they start to win 40 or 45% of the vote, then we are in a whole different world. And... And I think what's happened is that over the last five or so years, we've kind of tipped over the point where they're winning 20, 25% of the vote to the point where they're suddenly winning 35, 40, 45, and of course the magical 50.1% of the vote. Oh. Uh, and I think we should read both Brexit and Trump, and for that matter what's been happening in Australia is at least partly motivated by that very long-term trend. Uh, and of course that's exactly what we have seen in, in the UK. Um, so part of it is this general rise. And then the other thing that you can see around the world, and again, Australia mirrors these trends, is that this protest vote is much higher in regions uh -huh. than it is in cities. So it's true, for example, that Brexit, um, in the Brexit vote, uh, that London voted to stay. Uh, but it's not true that the rest of uh, England um, voted to leave. Because in fact, Oxford and Cambridge and Liverpool and Bristol uh, and Newcastle and uh, Leeds and Leicester and Norwich and pretty much every other significant concentration of population in the U in not the United Kingdom in England voted to stay. Scotland, as we know, is nowadays literally another country, and so that was a different story. Um, similarly, if you look at what happened in the United States, it is true that Hillary essentially won the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, and Donald did better in the centre. But when you blow up the map of Idaho, as you can if you go to the New York Times website, um, uh, you discover that, in fact, even, say, in Idaho, Hillary won all of the towns, and Donald won all of the regional and rural areas. So there's this very strong, essentially, population centres, cities, if you like, versus everything else. Uh, and we can see the same kind of thing that happens in Australia. It does happen here as well. So there's a very strong correlation. If we look at the Senate, and we've been analysing the Senate vote, because, of course, you don't have to worry about the way that um, different um, parties you know, don't run in some seats and not in others. Um, so if you look at the Senate vote, uh, the Senate vote in Queensland um, for the major parties, the Liberal, National um, parties, and also the Labor Party, the Greens, Highest, basically, exactly where we are now. Uh, and then the further you go from here, in pretty much, well, I suppose you can't go east, but the further you go either north or west, the lower the vote for the major parties is and the higher the vote is for the other parties. And, of course, I mean, particularly in Queensland, part of that minor party vote is a Pauline Hanson story. Sure. But a lot of it is not. In fact, most of it is not. Including in Queensland? Including in Queensland. So if we look at Queensland, um, something like 32% of, of the electorate 
voted for someone other than the Liberals, the Nationals, the Labor Party or the Greens. 32%. And of that, one nation got maybe eight or nine. So they were comprehensively outpolled by all others, as we call them, which are about which um, are parties that got less than three percent of the vote in any state. Uh, so, by and large, these are parties whose names you do not know. At least, certainly, I didn't know. The Animal Justice Party, for example, you know, polls a couple of percent. Yeah. You know, whatever they happen to believe in, yeah. um, and. Uh, they get about 16% of the vote compared to Pauline's nine, and then there's a couple of other parties that are material across the country, um, uh, the Liberal Democrats um, uh, and Nick Xenophon's party. So it's worth remembering it's not just a Pauline Hanson story. And we're in Queensland, and we will talk a fair bit about Pauline Hanson, but what about the other states of Australia where there are also increasing minor party votes but it's even less of a handsome phenomenon. That's right. I mean, it's in all states other than South Australia, this um, all other category, the little parties whose names you don't, I don't know, um, uh, get more than half of this vote. Um, bearing in mind that um, overall that vote in Australia today um, is something like, uh, what did we get up to in the last election? Something like about 26%. And then yep. the Greens are another 9%. So over a quarter of the electorate is voting for someone other than the major parties and other than the Greens. And when you look at that on a state-by-state -state basis, as I said, most of it tends to go to little parties. And then a good chunk in every state tends to go to somebody who has name recognition in that state. So in Victoria, uh, more of it went to Darren Hinch than to anyone else because he's a well-known radio personality in Victoria. Um, in South Australia, Nick Xenophon captured more than half of it. Indeed, he's now capturing something like um, uh, over 20% of the total vote uh, in the Senate in South Australia. Um, in, uh, in Tasmania, Jackie Lambie gets more of this vote than anyone else, bearing in mind, of course, that to get 5% um, or 6 or 7% of the vote, as Jackie Lambie does, uh, you only actually have to have 40,000 people vote for you in Tasmania being a slightly unusual place. Um, but uh, that's the story, that there's a big name recognition. And it's one of the things that leads us to think that a large part of this vote is a vote against rather than a vote for. It's not that, you know, in fact, you know, 3% of the population desperately want the Animal Justice Party and 2% desperately want, you know, Ed names of parties here, yeah. it, it seems to be a lot more that it's, I want someone other than what I'm getting at the moment. Mm. And if I recognise the name, that allows me to protest happily and, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and if yeah. I don't recognise the name, then I'm happy to pick from uh, the Star Wars bar as someone somewhat unkindly labelled them uh, in the um, previous election. And the distance from the GPO, the distance from the major population centres, again, a phenomenon around the states of Australia and not just in Queensland? Yeah, we call it the dartboard effect. If you yep. draw the map um, of, of how electorates vote, essentially the major party vote in every single state is highest literally at the GPO, and then it gets smaller and smaller as you go further out. So middle rings of, of cities, reasonably high vote. Outer rings, it's a bit lower. As you get into the sort of 
the cities that, and towns are sort of 100 kilometres from the CBD, so they tend, tend to still have a reasonable number of commuters. It's lower. As you, as you get 300 kilometres away, it's much lower. Um, and, and so we can average this because you can look at it on a per polling both, both basis. In the last election, typically, if you're in a CBD, the vote for minor parties was about 20%. Um, if you're about 100 kilometres away, the vote was about 30%. Uh, this is for minor parties, again, not including the Greens. And if you were 1,000 kilometres away, and of course there's a lot of Queensland that's in that category, yes. um, you were, it was more like 35% of the vote. So it's very strongly regional. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about Queensland, because I had to come up here and present um, a couple of weeks ago, I drew this map when I wish I'd done it earlier, is when you pull apart the Queensland vote and you basically say, well, what was the vote share for the One Nation Party? What was the vote share for all the other minor parties? One of the things you discover is that the vote share for all the other minor parties was about 20%, no matter where you were. So whether you are in Cairns or in, you know, uh, far northwest Queensland or in the Brisbane CBD, it was still about 20%. But if you look at the Pauline Hanson One Nation um, uh, vote share, essentially where we are, it was very close to zero. It's about 2% in the two electorates that are essentially inner city Brisbane. Uh, as you go into the middle rings of Brisbane, it was still only about 3 or 4%. As you go into the outer suburbs, um, it was typically up about more like about 8 or 9%. As you get about 100 kilometres away, it was pushing up towards 10. As you get out into the regions, it was consistently over 15%. So it's this really strongly correlated vote um, that fits essentially with um, distance to the CBD. OK. OK, so that's the easy bit. Yeah. That's what's been happening. And uh, it's quite stark. When you lay it yep. out, it's quite stark. Let me now put some harder stuff to you, please. I want to now move to the second question. Why is this happening? Is this an economic issue? Is this a cultural issue? Let me put, let me put a proposition to you, because I listen to conventional wisdom. I reckon I know what's going on. Isn't this all about a cry from the regions that are being left behind economically? The cities are getting richer, the regions are getting poorer, and naturally enough, people in the bush are protesting. I'm pretty warm, aren't I, John? I'm not so sure. Oh. So, so let's, let's, let's put this into sort of three rough buckets. There's a bucket which is essentially economic. Maybe it's that they're, um, whether it's regions, or don't forget also the, the minor party vote's been going up in the cities as well. Mm -hmm. So go back. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, two elections and the minor party vote in the CBD was about 10%. It's now about 20%. Now, that's big enough to care. Uh, as any major political party will mm. tell you, if you see a vote swing of 10%, you are in trouble. Mm. Um, uh, so we've got two phenomena we're trying to explain away. Why is the vote share going up in general? And then secondly, why is it particularly mm. going up in the regions? And we shouldn't necessarily assume that they're being driven by the same thing. And yeah, we've got a, a number of explanations. Maybe it's economic. Either we're not getting much economic growth or inequalities going up or something like that. Um, maybe it's cultural, and we'll need to kind of pull apart mm. what we mean by cultural. And mm. maybe it's institutional. People don't like the institutions anymore. So that's what we've been trying to do in this work is kind of pull it apart and say, um, well, which of those counts as a good explanation? Which of them, to be blunt, fits the facts? Yep. And so the way that, what, what facts would we look at? Well, we would look firstly at, do the shifts correlate in time? 
So if we were to explain away this big jump in the vote uh, for minor parties, which essentially happened in the 2013 election, we would expect that to be a time, if we're going to use an economic explanation, we'd expect that to be a time when people were doing economically really badly. Um, so we're looking for those kind of correlations in time. Then we're looking for something that minor parties talk about in their platforms. Ooh. It would be a bit strange if whatever it was that was motivating people was something that minor parties never talk about. Uh, and then thirdly, we're looking for something which, when we um, look at data about the characteristics of minor party voters, it's kind of more true for them than it is for the rest of the population. Um, so we have, in particular, a resource called the Australian Electional, um, Election Study. It's done after every single election. It's been running now for about uh, 20 years that asks people after the election, of course, how did you vote? Of course, basic demographic information, you know, where do you live, how old are you, what gender are you, all those kind of things. But also your attitudes to a huge number of things. You know, how do you think your econo the economy is doing? Do you think Australia should have more migrants? Uh, of course, in the last one, it asked, what's your attitude to same-sex marriage? Yeah. All of those kind of questions. Yeah. And so we'd expect it to correlate. Uh, and then in terms of this regional thing, again, we'd expect whatever's driving it has kind of, there's more of it in the regions than there used to be. Um, we'd expect that it was something that the minor parties that do well in the region, so in particular that is the Pauline Hanson One Nation Party, that they talk about more than everybody else. Um, we'd be looking for something that, again, when we look at voter attitudes, seems to be more important for people who are voting for those parties. And then we're also looking for something which is characteristically true of regional people more than people who live in cities. Um, so, for example, we know that people who live in regions tend to have overall lower incomes, Far fewer of them are migrants, particularly from Asia and um, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, and they tend to have lower levels of higher education. And of course, there's a whole other series of, of things that are true of regional areas, but not city areas as well. Mm -hmm. so, so one of those things, surely, is that the regions are poorer, that they're being left behind, that they feel as though the cities is where the money is, the jobs is. So we published a piece on this called um, uh, Regional Patterns in Australia's Economy and Population um, just a, a week or two ago. Um, and uh, what we did was look at the census, look at the tax data to try and understand what's been going on. And, and particularly the tax data, you can analyse very fine-grained level of detail. Obviously, we don't get to see what you personally put on your tax return. <laughs> but we can, for example, see the averages by postcode. Uh, and what that showed was a couple of things, uh, and it's consistent with the census data, although the tax data is, we think, a bit more reliable. Um, it shows that regional areas tend to have lower incomes than cities. Sure. Uh, although, interestingly, particularly in Queensland, far-flung areas, so places more than about 1,000 kilometres from Brisbane, uh, actually often have higher incomes than particularly the um, outskirts of Brisbane. So it's a little thing called the mining boom? A little thing called the mining boom, little thing called Cairns, little mm -hmm. thing called Townsville. Um, all of those cities are, in fact, doing quite well. Um, so we can see that, in general, though, regional incomes are less. But here's the really interesting thing. If we look at it over the last 11-year period, what we discover is that growth in incomes has been about the same. Indeed, the places that have had the worst income growth, and this is true in Queensland and true around the country, are essentially the outskirts of the CBD. So the new suburbs tend to have had relatively lower levels right. of income growth. They also by what, you know, tend to have lower levels of education and so on. But overall, regional income growth has been about the same. So it's one of the kind of puzzles. If we're going to explain this as being an, 
an economic story, an income story. Why weren't people in the regions voting for minor parties 10 years ago? They were, the, the differential in incomes was basically where we are now. In fact, if anything, it was a little bit higher. Um, and similarly, if we look at the inequality story, uh, actually, you know, the most unequal place in Queensland is, again, basically where we are now. Uh -huh. uh, and regions are typically much less unequal. So this sort of simple income story is not very persuasive for the regions. Now, the one thing that is very different is their populations are not growing nearly as fast. Yep. Uh, and of course, part of that is a, an economic story in the sense of disproportionately when businesses are setting up new businesses today, they're typically service businesses and they are very disproportionately mm -hmm. set up in the CBD, well, in cities, big cities and in the centre of major cities. Uh, and so we're seeing essentially population moving, particularly younger people, moving to where the jobs are, which is not wildly surprising. Um, and so we are seeing um, in some regional areas an absolute reduction in population and in pretty much all inland regional areas um, less in the way of population growth than you get in the cities. Cool. And then finally cool. on the economic front, the other thing we get asked is, oh, well, but, but maybe it's about unemployment, which the answer is no. We had a look at that map and we published that map in, in this regional patterns yeah. publication. And, and the answer is there's no very exciting story about uh, or consistent story about unemployment. There's an area of northern New South Wales that kind of has consistently higher levels of unemployment. If we look at a micro level, we can see that the regional towns tend to have higher levels of unemployment than the areas around them, essentially because people seem to be moving out of the, the true rural areas into the Ooh. regional centres. But other than that, there is no pattern. And if you randomly select a suburb in Brisbane, it's likely to have high or low unemployment in the same way that if you randomly select an area of regional Queensland, it might have high, it might have low unemployment. All There's right. just no pattern. All right, so you've... And the same thing is true as under underemployment. I mean, um, uh, Tim Colbatch wrote a piece um, earlier this week uh, saying, oh, yeah, but what about unemployment? Now, the problem is the data on underemployment is really ropey. It's really bad. Um, uh, the, a, the Bureau of Statistics research they do on unemployment, um, and we know at the national level the data is tended to bounce around a lot and a lot of people are not very confident about it. At a regional level, it's very unreliable and therefore the Ooh. data on underemployment is Ooh. very unreliable. unreliable. Um, uh, so what we use for unemployment is a series that the Department of Labor produces where they essentially mash together what the, a, the Bureau knows with what they can pull out of the unemployment statistics. Because of course, when you're unemployed, you claim unemployment benefits and they know where it is that you live. Um, so they're using that quite robust. The underemployment numbers less robust, mm. but when we we use what indicators we have, again we get this kind of just there is no pattern, nothing much correlates. All right. So I can see that you're not putting much weight on my economic disadvantage theory. Not for the regions, and also not for this general increase. Yep. Because one of the very very inconvenient facts here is that remember this general vote for minor parties jumped yep. in 2013. Now, if you think back, 2013 mm. was, in fact, at the height of the mining boom, mm. which, as it so happens, was, in many ways, the largest mining boom in human history anywhere on the planet. And it was in our... 
and it was in Queensland, in amongst other places. Yep. Um, it was a bit more in WA than in Queensland, but a goodly chunk of it was in Queensland. Yep. Um, incomes in the previous, essentially between, you know, obviously things slowed down a bit with the financial crisis, and then it took off really quickly thereafter. Uh, and real incomes rose between 2009 and 2013. Wages rose really fast. Uh, so, in fact, 2013, as it turned out, was more or less the peak of the boom. Now, either the Australian electorate was you know, remarkably prescient um, <laughs> in knowing that, in fact, the party was about to stop, uh, or it's whatever they were unhappy about. It wasn't the fact that they had more money in their pockets. Uh, and indeed, again, if we look at the attitudinal stuff, uh, that was the time at which um, attitudes about, you know, I feel financially confident mm. were higher than they've been at any other stage in the survey. So people, in fact, had more money in their pockets. They thought they had more money in their pockets. Uh, for me, to claim that you know, this mm. is being driven by the fact that people are poor, maybe that's true in the UK and the US. Although, actually, I think more likely what it is is that there's lots of potential causes here. And by looking at somewhere like Australia, we can conclude, you know, this economic explanation is just not really very persuasive. All right, let's keep searching. Let's keep searching. So you mentioned cultural influences, cultural... Uh, divide. Now, again, let me put a simple theory to you. The, the bush is feeling as though the city is further and further away from them culturally. All those, all those cosmopolitan progressives in the city don't look like me if I'm out in the regions. Is this part of what we're seeing here and is this part of the backlash? Well, it might be, but let me kind of pull that apart into two different things. So one of those things is about, you know, those kind of latte-sipping social liberals, um, you know, in, in the heart of Brisbane, you know, and they're all in favour of things like same-sex marriage and abortion, and, you know, if we can only get back to kind of good old conservative proper values. Now, there's a problem with that. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that on the data that's available, it appears that attitudes to all of those socially liberal causes are pretty much the same, no matter where you are in Australia, whether you are in the regions or in the cities. Mm. So attitudes, for example, to same-sex marriage, not materially different. Attitudes to abortion, not materially different. Attitudes to um, essentially whether we should have more severe punishments of criminals, not that different. And on all of these issues, the electorate has become more progressive over the last 10 years. And not just the metropolitan ones. And not just the metropolitan ones. It's kind of like the lines move in almost perfectly unison between um, the city and the regions. Um, we can't cut that down to an individual state. But we can say it's true for Australia as a whole. So I'm getting increasingly surprised, John. You're knocking out the economy. You're knocking out some of these social attitudes that I might have thought was not as you have just outlined. What, uh, where do we search next? We go beyond social yeah. attitude. Well, there is one social attitude that is different and materially different, and that is attitudes to migration. Now, not by lots, but by enough that we can actually say, yeah, that's statistically significant. So whether you ask questions like, um, you know, Australia, has, um, uh, my, uh, Australia is taking too many migrants, um, or whether you ask a question which is, uh, in fact, much more loaded, tells you a lot more about people's attitudes to migrants, which is um, migrants cause crime. Uh -huh. um, uh, you do get a difference between regions and cities. And, and uh, typically, regions are about 
10% more hostile to migrants, if I can put it that way, uh, than cities. And, and, that's, and that kind of differential has held over time. Now again, interestingly, attitudes to migrants in both the city and in the regions are, if anything, getting more sympathetic over time. They're certainly not getting more hostile. They did peak a bit in 2010, particularly not around that question about migrants cause crime, but around that question um, that you know Australia is taking too many migrants, which may have something to do with the fact that the migrant intake essentially jumped mm. really, really strongly in about 2009, 2010. So not surprisingly, when the actual level of migration went up, there were more people who said we're taking too many migrants, which shows that you know actually perhaps some of the time people in fact are paying attention. And some of those people numbers. were making those comments in cities where they were noticing yeah. uh, congestion on the roads, crowded trains, etc., yeah. etc. Et now, of course, the funny thing about these attitudes to migrants is that um, uh, the one thing that people in regions can't say is that migrants are taking their jobs because essentially there aren't any migrants, or at least very few recent migrants, in regional areas. And that's true across the country, with the exception essentially of the, the sort of coastal um, cities, so the, the Cairns, the Townsvilles, Mackays of this world, where, by the way, typically attitudes to migrants are much less... Um, are, much more, are much more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially the inland regional areas, both in Queensland in, and in New South Wales and, and the rest of the country, that tend to be less sympathetic towards migrants. Um, but they're also the places where they're just certainly in terms of migrants from Asia and the Middle East and Africa, there just aren't any. I mean, I was quite shocked. We drew those maps for, those, for that publication on, on regional patterns in employment and um, population. Mm. And, and if you look at inland um, Australia, it does often have significant numbers of migrants um, from uh, English-speaking countries and from uh, Europe. Western Europe, yep. But if we look at migrants from Asia, um, essentially the um, only uh, regional areas that have more than 3% of the population born in Asia are Shepparton, and uh, essentially the area around Griffith in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Now contrast that, there are large chunks of Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane where more than 20% of the population was born in Asia. So these are now radically different places. Uh, and it's even more stark if you look at, um, uh, at migrants from the Middle East and Africa. Um, Shepparton is the only <laughs> inland city in Australia, only inland region, where more than 3% of the population come from the Middle East and Africa. So Otherwise, it's less than 2%. In fact, most of the places is less than 1% of the population. So Shepparton in central Victoria, yep. possibly close to your heart, John, but tell me why Shepparton is one out of the box. Well, I think this is a lot about history. So um, uh, there was a significant... Um, uh, Asian migration there a long time ago. There were essentially market gardeners on the Goulburn River flat, uh, and that population essentially persisted and then attracted um, other people from Asia. Uh, and the Middle Eastern story is even more exotic. Um, so what happened was that there was a substantial um, uh, population from Albania uh, in Europe, um, and they were Albanian Muslims who went there in the 30s. And again, they were market gardeners essentially on the river flats. 
Um, uh, they had a sort of social system in which the younger sons would come out to Australia for a couple of years, um, work on the river flats, send a whole bunch of money home, then go home, you know, get married to a nice Albanian girl um, and settle down. Now, it was all terrific <laughs> until 1939. Yep. Uh, and essentially, a very large number of people from Albania then just never went home. But what it did also mean was that there was a very unusual inland population um, who were Muslim. And so I suspect that the um, Middle Eastern communities were prepared to go there because there was, you know, there, there was a mosque. There indeed, there are five mosques yes. um, in Jeopardan, have been for a very long time. Uh, in contrast to, say, Bendigo, there is no uh. significant social question about that. Indeed, the, I understand the Albanian mosque is expanding. Uh. Uh, it's not a big deal. Um, and interestingly, the reason the Albanian mosque is expanding is not because there's lots more Albanians moving to um, uh, Shepparton. It's because there's lots more Middle Eastern people moving to Shepparton. But the Albanian mosque is the one that is conducted in English. And so, of course, if the other mosques don't happen to speak your particular dialect from oh. wherever you're coming, um, then the next best thing is essentially the Albanian mosque. So that's the one that's growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Shepparton apart, we do have a difference that we've identified. Perhaps is it hostility towards migrants further from the GPO, or at least less sympathy? And and let me put it bluntly by using a question from the audience, which was submitted before uh, as people registered for this event. Uh, Roger Scott, thanks for the question. It's pretty straightforward. Is the rise of political populism due to previously concealed racism in Australia? Hmm. Well, it's certainly, um, let's look at the way it correlates. It, the, as I said, this part of this minority party voting appears to be, which and, and distinctively in Queensland, it goes to one nation. It's, it's actually kind of really clean in, in Queensland because you get this kind of all others, which is flat, and this one mm -hmm. nation, which is you know very regional. Um, uh, so the regional part certainly does correlate with the One Nation vote share. There's no question that as a party it spent plenty of time talking about migration. The slight puzzle, of course, is that attitudes to migration have not become more hostile over time. So it may be more complicated than straight, mm -hmm. simple racism. And of course, the weird thing about it is that you know the places complaining about the number of migrants coming to Australia are the places that don't actually have any migrants coming to them. Indeed. So, so what is it that might be going on here? And, and there's a kind of whole school of thought that's grown up in um, the political science literature around authoritarianism that says when people feel under threat, they tend to put up, they tend to put up the shutters and they tend to essentially vote against the other. They, they want to be protected from the other. Now, in the cities, of course, migrants are not the other. You know, we walk out the front door here, indeed if you don't even walk out the front door, we will be surrounded by people who come from Asia, our kids go to school with them, they live at the bottom of our street, yes. they go to our football club or our whatever it might be, and it's just not a big deal. So they are not, in kind of contact theory terms, they're not the other. Yes. Whereas if you are living in inland Australia, to be very blunt, you are very unlikely to know someone who was born in Asia. Mm. There's just not very many people born in Asia who live in regional anywhere in Australia, as I said, apart from Shepparton and, and, um, and Griffith and uh, from Asia, there's a reasonable population that came over for the mining boom. Um, so that might be one of the things that's going on. 
because people are increasingly feeling under threat, and of course we've had a, a big increase in, in discussion about national security, the yes. threat of terrorism, etc. You know, that's something we barely talked about before 9-11, and we have talked about a lot more over the last five, ten years. Um, maybe because people are feeling under threat, they respond to that by being more nervous about the other, and of course that classically plays out in, in racial terms mm. uh, than they used to be. And yet, interestingly, not all the uh, minor party personalities that we discussed earlier, Darren Hinch, uh, Nick Xenophon certainly, not all of them emphasise race issues. Hanson is perhaps one of the few who is identifiably talking about race. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I suspect, therefore, that... that it certainly looks as though race might have something to do with it, but maybe that's not the only thing that's going on. Maybe the other things that are going on are you've got regional centres that are losing population, or at least not gaining population. Um, you can't, uh, and they're tending to age, um, and so you can't, you know, the football team disbands because there's not enough people to, you know, play football anymore in the living yes. in that local town. Um, so there's that kind of economic uncertainty in the sense of falling population. My income's okay if I'm still living in, you know, Mackay or wherever it might be, but, but there's fewer people here. Um, so there might be some of that going on. And then I think the other thing is a thing about cultural distance. So if you think about, um, you know, if it really started to rain outside so we couldn't quite see where we were, mm -hmm. it would be pretty easy to walk out of this building and think that we were, in fact, in Singapore or Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Uh, or, you know, even Bangkok. But it would be very hard to think that maybe we were in Kabulcha. <laughs> um, and what that indicates is the way that these big cities, and Brisbane is no exception, have become quite like each other. Yes. And increasingly unlike regional towns. And you can really see this. If you go to somewhere like Adelaide or, or Auckland, um, Certainly five or ten years ago, they didn't look all that different from a big regional mm. town. Whereas now, they look quite different, mm. and places like Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney, which are big cities, look radically Absolutely. different. Absolutely, yes. So they look... Obviously, the streetscape looks different, the kind of things that people do, because essentially big cities can support a cultural life that regional of a kind and, and with forms that, that regional cities don't. Um, and then, of course, your cultural symbols kind of completely change in terms of, of um, the personalities. So, you know, 30 years ago, we gave a gold logie to Bert Newton. You know, mm. Last year, we gave it to Waleed Ali. You know, it's, and again, if I'm, if I'm living in, in regional Queensland, you know, Bert Newton could easily be the boy next door. Um, Waleed, probably not. Yes. yes. Uh, now, of course, and then, of course, what's happening is the cities are happy to vote for cultural symbols or happy to use as cultural symbols Whereas 30 years ago, they used Bert Newton as a cultural symbol. Oh. Nowadays, they're using people as cultural symbols who really don't obviously fit. Oh. Um, oh. And, and it's true of our literature as well. You know, you go back and you look at the school lit curriculum 35 years ago. It was dominated by books and poetry that was essentially about regional Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas you go and look at the school curriculum today, and there are way, way more books way more poetry and all the rest of it that's essentially about 
city experiences because so much more of the population lives in those cities. Um, you know, pro the proportions have changed. Uh, and, and I think that that's growing this cultural distance. And whereas people from Brisbane would probably think nothing about going to Singapore, going to inland Queensland is something Ooh. that, you know, a lot of people from Brisbane probably have never done. Ooh. Ooh. I've got another theory which relates to uh, mistrust, distrust in government, in the institutions, as you mentioned at the start. So if I am increasingly unhappy with our political system, with the big boys, the major parties, I'm going to be increasingly likely, am I not, to vote for the non-politician, to vote for the outsider, to vote for the ordinary man or woman who looks and sounds more like me. Now, I think you're onto something. Ah, thank goodness. <laughs> so, uh, there's no question that on polling all sorts of different things show that trust in government is falling. Yes. And that's true in Australia. It's also true overseas. Uh, and in particular, uh, it jumped in 2013, and you remember that was um, at the end of the um, uh, Gillard right, government. Gillard. Uh, we'd had um, all of the things that went before that. Mm. You can understand where it might be that particularly jumped. So it correlates in time. That's always helpful. At least it's in the right direction, unlike the income one, where mm. the correlation's actually in the wrong direction. Um, so it correlates in time. It is something we can see happening about uh, around the, the world. It is something that we can see. Minor parties typically do have this thing in their platform that says the system is corrupt, um, uh, or you know we need to reform the institutions, or what you need is people who don't come out of the existing system. If you think about you know Donald Trump, who you know whatever his failings has a glorious way with words, drain the swamp. Mm. You know it's essentially about don't trust the establishment. Vote for me. I'm not from the establishment of the existing political parties. Yes. Uh, again, when we look at the characteristics of minor party voters, it's the one thing on which they're quite different that we've been able to identify. They are much more likely to have low levels of trust in government than people who vote for the major parties. Um, uh, so at least it kind of fits the evidence. Yes. Um, and, and, it fits, and particularly that's true across the country. So in terms of trying to explain away this general rise for minor parties in both cities and regions, that's looking like a pretty good candidate. So let me move on before I open to questions, John, and ask this, let's get to the third issue, which is what should we do about this? But that invites a question first of all, which is should we do anything about this? Are you worried, should I be worried about the rise of minor party vote, about the rise of populism? Well, um, not necessarily. You know, one of the virtues of democracy is that people, if people are unhappy about something, um, they, you know, ultimately tend to exercise that at the ballot box and you get change, and that's kind of the idea. Um, uh, democracy is not designed to be efficient, but it's designed to kind of get to the right answer in the long run. Um, and so uh, we shouldn't worry about minor party votes rising per se. If they're expressing something that's, you know, halfway sensible, um, and if they lead to something being done about that, then, you know, them's the brakes. Now, you can understand why the mi major parties might be yep. really worried, but, but we shouldn't, you know, we're not in this game to necessarily look after them. Yep. 
Now that said, there are reasons to be worried. Populism, historically, has not always led to the nicest results. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it does tend to lead to, um, you know, authoritarianism. It does tend to lead to people being a lot happier about trampling on existing rights and freedoms. Um, uh, it, it does, ironically, because it often promises something it can't deliver. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, so, you know, it promises I'm going to solve all of these ills, and then, of course, the reality of politics and policy is that you can't solve all of those ills. So what you do is you start a short, successful war um, uh, in order to distract the population from the fact that you can't solve their domestic problems. Uh, and, of course, the catch is that um, any number of long and unsuccessful wars were started yes. with the theory that they were going to be short and successful. Yes. Afghanistan comes to mind, among others. Uh, amongst, it is, it is the, well, not the last, no. but it is in a line of a very large number of wars that were essentially started, at least in part, with that kind of motivation. Mm. So, mm. yes, we should be worried about it from that point of view. And then I think we should be worried about the rise in minor party voting precisely because it does reflect, I think, to some extent, a reality. You know, we ask, why is it that people might be more distrustful of their government today than they were 15 years ago? What's, yep. what's going on? Well, some of that is because information is more available and people are more sceptical as a result, uh, and they've become um, more sceptical about experts because they can find things from themselves. Sometimes, you know, without all as much insight as we might like, but nevertheless, they become more sceptical. Um, sometimes people are more um, concerned about government because governments have engaged in this arms race of raising expectations. What Laura Tingle in a, I think, quite brilliant essay called mm. Great Expectations. Um, uh, governments raise these great expectations, whether it's about creating jobs or improving housing affordability or whatever it might be, because the population's concerned about these things. The reality is there's only so much that policy can do to help on these fronts. And having raised expectations, inevitably they wind up not meeting those expectations, and so you get in this very vicious yes. cycle of, of, of wanting to increase expectations, sorry, wanting to fulfil expectations that you never do. And then I think that there's a reality which is driven by the way that um, democracy is um, less representative than it used to be. So our political parties have much smaller memberships than they used to in absolute terms, and as a percentage of the population, they're way smaller than they used to be, and they're much less representative. So in Victoria, we know, because it was published um, by the Liberal Party, um, that the average age of a member of the Liberal Party in Victoria is 62. That's the average. Ooh. If you kind of look at the kind of news footage of, of people going into pre-selection meetings, yes. you can see that the, you know, there's a kind of a couple of 30-year-old young Liberals, and then there's a lot of people over 70. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that's not what the Australian population looks like. The average age is nothing like 62. Yep. Um, and the same, of course, is true on the other side of politics. You know, the, well, more than the average, almost all of the members of the ALP are unionists, and yet union membership is at an all-time low mm. and falling like a stone. Mm. So the big parties are not looking like us anymore. No, and nor are the people that they wind up electing, partly because the people they wind up pre-selecting kind of look like the pre-selectors rather than everybody else, um, and partly, or at least people that the pre-selectors like and, and play to their particular mm. interests. But also because politics is much more a job for life, people who wind up getting pre-selected are much more people who've worked as staffers, um, who've worked inside Parliament House essentially for most of their working life. And so we have far fewer people today than we used to who've 
gone out, they've, you know, whether it's worked in a car factory or worked um, uh, in a hospital or... Driving a steam engine. Driven a steam engine to take, you know, some <laughs> of Australia's most famous politicians. Um, uh, far fewer have that kind of breadth of background. Yep. Um, yep. And, and I think that that means that we identify with them less. What about in policy terms? Why should we be worried? Should we be worried? Does it, does it mitigate against good quality public policy that can make some incremental gains in these areas that are so difficult and that the population wants solved? Well, look, sometimes, but I think actually there's another reality here, which is that um, the perception and, and tied up in this falling trust is a belief that decisions, policy decisions are increasingly driven by a few big interests, is the way that the question mm. is worded. Um, and, and that's going up, belief in that. And, and certainly if I look at it, my experience now over eight and a half years in Grattan, you do not have to look very far to find policy decisions that are not very obviously in the public interest, <laughs> but very clearly serve a bunch of vested interests. Yes, indeed. And, and you look at it and you think, and you can see governments just tying themselves in knots to find an argument about why they are doing this. And frankly, it's not very credible. So um, we see this, for example, in health policy, um, uh, the way that we, we do drugs policy, pharmaceuticals policy. The government formally signs an agreement with Medicines Australia that represents the pharmaceuticals industry, yes. right? There's nothing, you know, that's what they are. Fancy name, but they are basically the lobby group for the pharmaceuticals industry. They sign an agreement with them once every five years yes. about what policy changes there's going to be for the next five years. I mean, I mean you know, just stop and think about that. The government signs an agreement with a lobby group about what it will, and more importantly, will not do oh. for the next five years. And then they wonder why people think that decisions are being made in favour of vested interests. Oh. Oh. Um, uh, you know, I think another really good example is poker machines. Now, you know, you do a raw poll and, you know, you will find most people would be happier if Australia had fewer poker machines. Yes. We're a complete outlier um, relative to the rest of the world in terms of the amount that's lost on them uh, and in gambling in general, but it's particularly pokies that are different. Um, the social impacts are horrible. Um, essentially, you know, they're disproportionately in low-income areas. Um, low-income people lose more in absolute terms on poker machines, let alone as a percentage of their income. You know, and yet our politicians have just found excuses to do very little about it. And I think it's no accident that Nick Xenophon, who perhaps exemplifies this rise of protest politics yes. in Australia, um, perhaps even more so than Pauline Hanson, came to fame That's right. on the back of poker machines, as did, for that matter, um, Andrew Wilkie. So, uh, and then we see a procession of people from politics moving out of politics and moving into lobbying jobs. Ooh. It's not a great look. Um, it's the most charitable one can be about Ooh. it. Um, uh, indeed, people who you know, are ministers and have essentially signed up for a lobbying job before they have left parliament. Surely not. <laughs> yeah, and then they wonder why trust in politics is falling. And you know, I think this is one of those things where you can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. John, I want to open it up to questions. Um, and could I please ask that um, you wait for a microphone to get to you before asking the question, because this session is being recorded, so you can all enjoy it on the Grattan Institute website afterwards. Um, if you want to drill deeper into John's expertise, if you want to take issue with some or all of what John said, now's your chance, please. 
Um, I'll start with the gentleman just here. Thank you. I'd like to suggest a, um, another factor which you didn't mention, John, and that's uh, inequality in wealth creation. I think it's, it's no longer really correct to talk about um, wage growth and um, unemployment and employment, because I think we're now in an age where you've got incredible government incentives for wealth creation. And I think that's starting to create quite a bit of unfairness and a lot of resentment in the electorate. And so my question, and we all know the incentives, the, you know, the, um, around real estate, driving up prices so that young people can't buy houses, that sort of thing. So my question, I guess, really is um, more along the lines of do you think that inequality and fairness will be a defining issue as we move forward in Australia? So let me break that up into two quite different concepts. One is, do I think that inequality and fairness will be a big deal in Australian politics? My answer is, well, look, manifestly, it's already a big deal. Um, and you're absolutely right that, that, that inequality of incomes in Australia hasn't actually changed much over the last 10 or 15 years. Indeed, the thing that really hits you when you look at the numbers is not that the top's gone up a little bit more than the bottom. What, what's really obvious is that kind of all the boats really rose a long way over a 15-year period. That's on incomes. On wealth, you are absolutely right. Very different story. Essentially, the bottom 40 percent, well, the bottom 20 percent, typically never had any wealth, and they still don't. The next one up, though, the kind of the, the second um, quintile, as we call them, so people essentially between 21 and 40, um, they've seen relatively, basically, no income growth over a 10 or 15 year period, uh, whereas the people at the top have seen about a 35 percent increase in wealth in real terms. So, yeah, we are seeing an increasing wealth inequality. Um, is that an issue? Yes. Um, are people talking about it? Well, clearly the ALP is talking about mm. it a lot. Um, uh, so, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why you don't want your society to be um, much, much more unequal than it is today. Mm. But I don't think it's driving political populism. Why don't I think that? Well, the areas that are particularly voting for um, minor parties are not places that have particularly stark inequality. Inequality is interestingly completely absent from pretty much all mm. of the platforms of these minor parties. It's just not something they talk about. If you look at where their voters' attitudes are, they actually sit almost bang in the middle of the Australian political spectrum. So if you ask for their voters' attitudes on, you know, do you think there should be more redistribution, all of those kind of sort of questions that are essentially getting at you kind of more right-wing or left-wing, um, essentially it turns out that minor party voters are a little bit to the right of the ALP and a little bit to the left of the Liberal Party. <laughs> um, they're just not particularly interesting on that dimension. Mm -hmm. Now, so that's why I don't think that this rise in minor party voting is being driven by inequality. Um, I think it's being driven by these institutional factors, which, as I said, voters, are, the attitudes are different for minor parties, and they are a clear factor of their um, of their platform. And it clearly has been getting worse. Um, whereas, as I said, it's really only wealth inequality that's been getting noticeably worse in Australia. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean I don't think it's a big issue. I think we will see it increasingly as an issue between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. Certainly. Uh, Bill Shorten's doing his best to define things on those terms, and look whether that works, you know, we'll see, and that's politics. Um, but I don't think it's what's distinguishing the minor parties, and I think that's something different. Uh, and I think, you know, one way of seeing, thinking about how this might play out is 
Bill Shorten and the ALP essentially try and woo votes from the, um, the Liberal Party and the, the National Party on that basis. And meanwhile, both parties wind up losing, party, losing votes to minor parties, mm. to voters who are concerned about these institutional issues and also, the, in regional areas, the cultural issues that we talked about. Thank you, John. There was a question from a woman here. Thank you. And then I'll move along here and I will go to the back of the room shortly. Thank you. John, I'd li like to ask what might be the implications for the Australian economy and the well-being of the nation overall if migration numbers were reduced to something below $100,000 as advocated by one, 100,000 people as advocated by people such as Dick Smith. Um, let me try and answer what is in fact a very complicated question but a really good question, really good um, question. In, in, in two minutes. So in terms of the economic effect of migrants, um, obviously they wind up increasing demand. So if you're a large business where you know, part of your profits are essentially driven by the size of the Australian economy, not the per capita um, uh, GDP, but the absolute GDP, then life is happy if there are more migrants. Um, so that's one effect. A second effect is because of the migrants we are taking who are disproportionately um, higher educated, because essentially that the effect of the 457 visa and the international student scheme is typically the average migrant is more highly educated um, than uh, the average person in Australia. Um, uh, they tend to be at least as productive as the existing workforce, if not a little bit more so. The catch, of course, is that um, for every migrant you, that comes to Australia and settles or that adds to the total population, you've got to build more infrastructure. Uh, and the Productivity Commission did a piece of work that essentially said, look, over the long run, those things more or less awash. So, yeah, you get a bit more productivity, but you've got to, got to spend on extra infrastructure, and those two things more or less cancel out. Um, then, however, there's two things that, that are much harder to put numbers around. One is, when you have more migrants in a country, particularly when they're essentially all settling in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, because that's where the additional jobs are being created, you create enormous pressure on housing affordability. So essentially the price of land goes up. Terrific for anyone who already owns land, essentially people over the age of 40, 45. Um, really bad for people who don't own land, essentially anyone under the age of 35. Um, so the people who lose out of very high levels of migration are people who are under the age of 35 because essentially it's going to cost them a lot more to buy into the housing market. Then the other thing that's very hard to put a number around but that on the literature does appear to be quite an important impact in the long run is that in the very long run, a country with more migrants tends to become more vibrant. It tends to wind up with higher productivity growth in the long run. Because, because migrants, A, bring a diversity that, that tends to foster that, and secondly, they tend to bring an attitude to life which is that they've got more get up and go because by definition they have already got up and left. Um, so, as I said, hard to put a number on all of those things. Um, but there's no question that you know, governments could, if they chose, reduce the number of migrants who came to Australia. Um, one of the issues with that is um, we've kind of got ourselves on a treadmill, which is that we've, we've had a lot of people come here. That means we need to build a lot more infrastructure. And we are really struggling yes. to put enough boots on the ground to build that infrastructure. Uh, and a lot of it is effectively being staffed by migrants. You know, it's kind of the snowy hydro scheme all over again. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, 
Could we reduce it to 100,000? Yes. Would that have effects? Yes. Would they be, some of them be, you know, benign? Yes. Would some of them be not benign? Yes. <laughs> what do you want to do? And the answer is, well, it kind of depends what country you want to be, and that I can't tell you. Great question. Great question, thank you. There's a gentleman just here, and then I'll, if I may, go to the back of the room. Sir. I'm Roger Scott, by the way, who put in that earlier question. Thanks for the earlier um, question, Roger. My subject is really about teaching parochial virtues um, in terms of what I write about. Um, I'm interested in a great number of your points about the difference between Queensland and the rest of Australia. Your dartboard is one of the problems. Um, the dartboard doesn't work very well in the Queensland context, in the way it does in Sydney or in Melbourne or Adelaide or in Perth, and, and less so in Hobart, but that's a minor point. Um, I'm also concerned with your date of 2.13, uh, which is when there were major changes. The major change in Queensland was Campbell Newman, um, and there was significant hmm. political fallout in the regions because the National Party were worried that it had lost control having been in control most of the time when it wasn't fighting with, with the Labor Party. So that there is a number of issues which are particular to Queensland which may have a different impact uh, on some of those points uh, compared to the rest of Australia. Hmm. Thank you. Um, I mean, great question. Uh, I guess, look, clearly, you know, Campbell Newman had a political effect um, in Queensland. Uh, but what I would note is that the rough patterns that we see in terms of this rising vote for minor parties um, in general in 2013 also happened in Queensland in the same way that it happened in every other state. And this rising regional vote went up in Queensland in the same way that it went up in every other state. Now, you're right. One of the things that's slightly complicated about Queensland is it does have very substantial um, regional coastal cities, essentially, you know, Cairns, Townsville, Mackay, which don't have, which are a long way from Brisbane, um, whereas, you know, in other states that do have those kind of cities, like, say, Newcastle and Wollongong, they're actually pretty close um, to the capital city and to some extent their dormitory suburbs are at least quite tightly economically integrated. Um, so they do tend to behave a little bit differently to kind of everywhere else in the country. Um, but that said, Brisbane and the Gold Coast um, essentially behave more or less like Melbourne and Sydney, both in electoral terms and in economic terms. Um, and um, inland Queensland, so essentially everywhere over the divide, essentially behaves in electoral terms and in economic terms, more or less like inland from the divide in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, but you're right, um, uh, the, the, the coastal cities of Queensland are a bit different. But bear in mind, that's not a large part of the show. There may be 20% of the Queensland population. You know, it's worth remembering that something like 65% essentially lives in Brisbane and its conurbation, if you include the southeast Queensland, you know, um, Gold Coast Gold conurbation, Coast. which I think is the right way to think about it, at least economically, uh, and for that matter, politically. Thanks, Roger. Show me more hands, and particularly up the back, there's a gentleman there who's had his hand up for quite some time. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, really good holistic and um, overarching conversation. It's been really good. Uh, just want to see what your thoughts are on how postmodernism has created 
such a proliferation through identity politics uh, that the, the kind of common foundation for a, a debate is really starting to fall by the wayside. There was a really good article in the New York uh, New Yorker about the end of identity politics. And if you think about the filter bubble and the internet and how the algorithms of Google and Facebook show you what you want to see, we're actually, I think, seeing an increasing um, you know, extremism within different identity politic perspectives where they're all going down their own uh, rabbit hole and really th th there's not much of a foundation for a common perspective because electoral politics caters to that kind of uh, spiralling downwards into different perspectives. So I just wanted to see what you think about that as part of everything that you've said, which I think is an all of the above response. Yeah. So, look, I think it, it, it can certainly be made to fit as part of that overall thesis, um, that um, essentially our polity is becoming more um, uh, split into different parts. Those parts are not talking to each other as much as they used to. We have fewer common symbols. We have fewer fewer touchstones than we used to in common. At least that's the claim. And look, I think that's probably true around a few things. Um, uh, and no doubt the, the way that social media works accentuates that. But, but that said, I look at it and I say, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, you know, we do still have plenty of things that we do have in common. Um, and politicians can choose to talk about those more or less. Mm. Uh, and sometimes they've chosen to talk about them less. Um, uh, and then that's caused problems. Um, you know, it's a really interesting, you know, you can talk about the way that Australia has lots of migrants and they're each bringing their own community and they're all doing things in their own community. Uh, and, um, you know, that's the country we have. Uh, and, you know, occasionally, um, uh, you know, we get to sort of see the restaurants that they eat in. That's, <laughs> that's one way of describing it. Or you can say, isn't it great, Australia's got this country and it's full of migrants, and those migrants are participating in our democratic structures, and indeed some of them have become premiers and, and governors, governors general, yep. um, and uh, you know, they actually by and large share their culture, and, and we have one of the most exciting food cultures in the world, precisely because you, you, know, you can walk down the street and eat you know, fabulous food from any number of different countries, and people do. And you can walk into the local Chinese, and there'll be someone from Africa. And you can walk into the local, um, uh, into the local uh, Lebanese restaurant, and there'll be someone from Albania. Um, and and isn't now when you frame it that way, you frame what we have in common, as opposed to what we have differently. So you're right that that identity politics has been used to often identify and emphasise differences. And that does cause a fracturing of politics. And I think it's up to our politicians to think about how do they want to talk about things? Do they want to emphasize those differences or do they want to, min or do they want to emphasize what we have in common? Now, partly because we're in a two-party political game, they've tended to emphasize differences. One of the virtues, ironically, yes. of minor party politics yes. is that because major party parties suddenly have something to lose playing that game, they might start to emphasise what we have in common. I believe that when Senator George Brandis this afternoon gave an emotional address to the Senate condemning Pauline Hanson for coming into the chamber in a burqa, that he received a round of applause across the chamber from the Labor Party and the Greens as well. 
quite interesting. More questions from the back? A lady there, please, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for a fascinating discussion this evening. So I would like to just um, point out one minor thing as a preface to my question. 63 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. 66 million people, a delta of 3 million people, voted for Hillary Clinton. In part, the reason that the United States and unfortunately the world ended up with Donald Trump is because a lot of people didn't turn up to the polls. So t t one question, do you think because voting is mandatory in Australia <laughs> that, that potentially your, your votes and your elected officials are more representative of the populace? Um, and uh, yeah, that, I guess that's the, the primary question. Um, so, uh, look, obviously compulsory voting does help push things towards that more kind of representative um, uh, view of the world. But that said, um, that doesn't work forever. Um, and, and when you add in the Greens, the minor party vote in the Senate in the last election was 34%. It's a third. Um, so something is going on here, um, and people clearly aren't happy. And as Andrew Charlton has pointed out, on the occasions in Australia's history when the minor party vote has got as high as it is today, essentially every time that has happened, one of the major parties has gone out of business and one of the minor parties has essentially started mm -hmm. up. Mm. So I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good thing either. I'm just saying that that's true as a matter of history and no doubt that's why major parties will definitely be concentrating on it. Um, so uh, I think compulsory voting does have an impact in Australia, um, but it's not, um, it doesn't mean that nothing will, happen, nothing will change here. The other thing that has an impact in um, uh, Westminster systems, um, or more accurately, in Westminster systems which have an independent electoral commission that draws sensible looking boundaries, which is essentially what we have, um, and where you don't gerrymander them, which we don't do anymore in Queensland. Um, uh, in that kind of world, um, the big game between the major parties is essentially about controlling the middle of the beach, the middle of the electorate. Um, and this, this comes from an economic theory which is about, as known as ice cream seller theory, which is when you ask, um, uh, if you've got two ice cream sellers on a long beach, and they're both selling the same ice cream at the same price, where do they stand? And the answer is, they will wind up standing back-to-back back in the centre of the beach. That is the economically rational outcome. If you think about the game theory of what would happen if one of the ice cream sellers moved close to one end, you can see that, well, the other one would just kind of move that way. Um, and that's essentially how our politics works. You know, both parties actually work, major parties stay pretty close to the centre of the beach because otherwise they won't win the marginal electorate. And if they don't win the marginal electorate, they can't possibly win an election. Um, uh, so one way of thinking about this, uh, and uh, Craig Laundy occasionally, I suspect, um, uh, reminds his colleagues of this, is if you do not carry Western Sydney and you know, a couple of the key suburbs in Western Sydney, you just can't possibly win the election. It's all very well mm. saying you're going to do something that appeals to um, you know, far northwestern Queensland, but if that doesn't play at all in Western Sydney, you are not going to win the general election. Um, and so... Um, whereas in America, because so many of the districts are gerrymandered, the only game that matters is essentially winning pre-selection. Mm. So you get candidates who get really driven by the pre-selectors. 
In Australia, even if the pre-selectors are not a fair representation of the Australian community, nevertheless, they're under enormous pressure from the party machines to pre-select candidates who are going to appeal to the middle of the beach. Mm. Um, and so that too reduces the pressure in Australia to, to um, go, for the, go for the extremes, which is what's happened more in America. Of course, the other thing that happened in America is because of the peculiarities of the, the whole pre-selection process, they wound up, the Republicans wound up with a candidate who appealed to a majority of you know, Republicans who bothered to show up to um, uh, the um, uh, pre-selections the primaries, but not necessarily would have been the first pick of people who voted for the Republicans. But nevertheless, a large part of, of Donald Trump's vote on any analysis was not people who actually liked his policies or personality at all, but people who have always voted Republican and would rather vote for Donald Trump because he was a Republican than for Hillary Clinton. Um, so I think you do have to read the American election through that prism, which is, um, you know, clearly a chunk of his support was from people who, you know, vote Republican as a matter of kind of emotional, visceral attachment, rather than because they necessarily like what they see. And you, and you see that even in Australia on a whole series of policy issues. You will get people who um, think a particular way about a political issue essential a policy issue because yes. they identify with a particular political party and when that political party changes its view about that issue they change their view not about who they vote for but about the issue um, and, and so there's some of that going on as well I think. John ladies and gentlemen we're almost out of time I'm going to do something a bit naughty I'm going to ask the last question if I may John I want you to give us a prediction because I reckon this has been a terrific discussion um, uh, and the questions were really good. But if we were to reconvene here, John, in about 10 years' time, same panel, same audience, same location, do you think that we would still be talking about the rise of populism and of minor party voting? That is, is what we see now the new normal in Australian politics? So that's very hard to predict, and let me explain why it's very hard to predict. It depends a lot on what the major parties do. Sure. So if the major parties respond to this by essentially saying, we're on one side, we're going to talk a lot more about inequality, and on the other side saying, we're going to talk a lot more about you know, conservative values and um, uh, national security. National security. Um, and maybe a bit of wolf whistling about migration. I mean, one of my jobs was in this year's budget was to go through all of the budget measures, you know, line by line. And I think I got up to about 30 that one way or another amounted to be mean to people who were not born in Australia. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that's not wolf whistling. That's kind of putting a collar around the dog, as someone said, and taking it around the block. <laughs> um, uh, but um, if that's what they do, then if I'm right about what's driving this vote, it's going to get worse. Yes. And we will see an increasing yes. vote for minor parties, and indeed, it is, chances are Andrew Charlton will be right, and one of those minor parties will get such a large share of the vote that it actually starts to wind up driving the outcomes. Mm. And it may well, you know, one of the funny things about Westminster democracies is parties are large until they're not. Uh, and as we saw in the French election, you know, you get to a critical threshold, sure. and parties just get wiped out. They go from having, you know, 
60% of the MPs to basically nobody. Um, it's happened in Canada a number of times. So it, and, and of course, it hasn't happened in Australia now in living memory. I think the last time was 1950-something. Um, but uh, it can happen again. Um, and then, so that's one scenario. The other scenario is one in which the political parties realise that they are, you know, how much they're fighting about votes from each other. They're also actually now trying to retrieve a large chunk of the vote yep. from other people. Remember, as I said, that minor party vote in the Senate is now a third. That's big enough to care. Um, uh, and so they say, OK, I'm going to go after the root causes here. And if the root cause is about rebuilding trusted institutions, well, I'm going to get fair income about political uh, entitlements. I'm going to get fair income about political donations. I'm going to get fair income about trying to reduce the influence of lobbying on Australian politics. I'm going to pick a couple of iconic issues where I'm going to, you know, if a couple of vested interests get run over, then, you know, that's kind of too bad. Um, uh, I'm going to work really hard at not overpromising. Um, regions, I'm going to try and deal with, again, with cultural symbols and also making sure that the services that governments deliver are, um, are as good as they can be. Uh, indeed, if anything, I'm going to over-service the regions. Um, and if it costs more money, well, at least, you know, some people are better off as a result. Mm -hmm. um, that's a world, and I'm going to worry about my, my rhetoric. Um, whether it's about migrants or about other issues, I'm going to focus on the things that unite us rather than divide us. Mm. Now, that's a world in which the minor party vote might fall. But, of course, to do that, the, particularly the major political parties would be essentially giving away... Uh, they, they'd probably also make themselves much more permeable to the population. Instead of fighting get-up, they would look at, well, what can we learn from them? Mm -hmm. What can we do? Now, of course, the catch is the secret to get-up, or at least one of the secrets, is they actually give their members a reasonable amount of say about their agenda. Now, of course, our major political parties are not very keen on yep. that. <laughs> yep. um, you know, give, give a million people from the public control over the agenda? I don't think so. Um, and so uh, it would be a pretty big shift, and they would have to give up the, 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 the relatively small groups that control those parties and their agendas would have less power than they do at the moment. Uh, and so I think it's a question about, well, are these going to be Kodaks yes. that, that hang on to their, you know, the way they've always done business for as long as they possibly can until they can't? Uh, or are they going to be you know, IBMs that wind up you know, radically shifting their business model and you know, it's a different business, but it's still very successful? Mm, and a business that deserves our trust. Well, I think that's, if we're right about what's driving this, that's what they have to rebuild. Mm. And, and as I think I've illustrated, I think that there, there are reasons why they have... There are, there are real reasons why they have been losing trust. Mm. Not just mm. perception. You know, like there's a reality to that perception. Um, and, and so they will actually have to deal with the reality as well as the perception. John, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. I wanted to uh, thank the staff of the State Library of Queensland for making this possible. I want to particularly thank you, the audience, for coming out tonight, for your interest and, in particular, your questions. I loved them. You made my job very easy too. And, John, I think you might have a few final words. I do. So, so firstly, um, uh, we spoke very briefly about this um, recent Griffith Review, The Perils of Populism, um, uh, which is, um, has a whole series of different viewpoints. One of the traps in a topic <laughs> like this is to rely on just mine. Um, uh, uh, very well thought through, as I would like to believe it might be. Um, there are lots of other points of view on this topic, and 
a lot of them are set out in the Griffith Review, and for those who, who can't remember that, by the time you get home, you might be able to pick up a postcard just outside um, that you can take home and, and remember to have a look at it online or, or pick it up. Um, uh, as Anna mentioned, um, there's another tour of the Freedom Then and Freedom Now exhibition starting um, straight after this. Um, and uh, if you're booked into that, um, please don't forget to go. If you're not booked into it, um, you might, you know, try. You never know your luck. Free <laughs> glass of wine, I believe. I know, it sounded pretty good. Oh. Um, and then finally, to say enormous thanks uh, to uh, Anna Rannick and the State Library of Queensland for the chance to use this completely magnificent venue. Um, uh, it is, uh, you have no idea how lucky you are in Queensland to have a, a venue which is in so many ways just perfect for this kind of event. Mm. Um, it's a real privilege to use it and of course it's a real privilege um, to work with the library with all that they do to try and promote both an understanding of our history and public discussion about policy issues and public issues that takes that discussion forwards, but with an understanding of our history. Um, so uh, thank you for your cooperation. Uh, and also, if there's anything um, else that's tickled your fancy in tonight's discussion, um, if you look for the event listing on our Grattan website, um, uh, there's some more readings there, including uh, that piece that I mentioned that we published Ooh. a couple of weeks ago, on, um, uh, which has lots of very pretty maps, if nothing else, um, about uh, regional patterns of employment and um, uh, population and incomes. Uh, and also, uh, as you probably gathered, there's a significant piece of Grattan work in the works um, that we'll be publishing, uh, hopefully before too long, that um, deals with this, and I'd encourage you all to, to read it, have a think, uh, and then participate um, in the public debate that is so important on this issue. Mm. So thank you all very much for coming. It's been great to have your company. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.